Hi, it's Julia here. Just a quick note before we start the show. You're listening to one of our earlier episodes, and the audio might be a tiny bit ropey in places. We do figure out how to fix that in later episodes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pickup articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. Tell me what you've been reading this week. Hey, Laura. I've spent a lot of time this week reading about what's happening with the meat industry in the US um, as a result of coronavirus. Um, Loads and loads of coverage in the US media at the moment and and some of the UK media as well. Um, An article that I found really helpful actually was in Time magazine by Tara Law, um, which just provided a really simple overview of what's happening there. And, you know, the kind of things that caught my eye around this is, um, you know, this is a situation that's really coming to a crisis point now with Tyson Foods, one of the biggest um, meat producers in, in the US taking out a full-page ad in the New York Times this week uh, to warn that the food supply chain is breaking. Um, This is all linked to workers at meat processing plants uh, testing positive for for COVID-19 and those plants being shut down and that having huge impact on on, on meat supply chains and, um, you know, both and up and down the the, the supply chain. So um, that's definitely, I think, a, a really interesting um, article that provides a really good overview of some of the questions um, that I think are going to come out of that whole crisis, questions that aren't just relevant for the US, but also over here about, you know, levels of consolidation in in the meat industry, the reliance on human labour and the need for, you know, automation and mechanisation and so on and so forth. And I know this word's used quite heavily, but it is pretty unprecedented, isn't it, for a meat company to be taking advertising space like that in national press? Totally. And, you know, I think it just speaks to, um, yeah, the situation they are they are finding themselves in, mm-hmm. where on the one hand, you had Donald Trump signing an executive order earlier this week saying, you know, the meat industry is an essential industry and, and trying to keep meat processing plants in operation. Um, but of course, those companies have a duty of care to their workers as well. Um, and uh, you know, need to need to find a way for those workers to operate safely and with the right protective equipment. Um, so yeah, it's um, as you say, it's an unprecedented situation that isn't just causing um, prices to spike and is you know potentially going to to result in less choice on supermarket shelves, but I think is also going to be a catalyst for you know wider debate about the the, the shape and health of the meat sector and. Um, how it might need to change post-COVID. Yeah, 
the first thing that I saw this week that, that caught my eye was a, a stat uh, released by the British Frozen Food Federation. And this was the fact that we're buying more frozen food. And I know, that, I know that's not a surprise to any of us, but 28% up um, the frozen food category. Uh, but what really was interested in that article was the fact that uh, the UK consumers still don't really know what they're doing with frozen food in terms of how long do items take to defrost? Should you be putting them on a, su a sunny um, window ledge or should you be putting them in the fridge? And how much actually the food industry still has an opportunity to go back to basics with uh, uh, educating or just actually in a more modern way, supporting consumers with how they can use frozen food. Um, and Iceland, I guess, have, have really revolutionised a lot of the, the frozen food category uh, and, and a leading the charge in some of this. So yeah, really caught my eye and thinking, could this be a trend that would stay uh, in the UK market that we're actually going to continue to buy more frozen product? I think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting point. And I think there was an article actually on um, BBC Future this week as well, sort of talking about, I guess, some of the misconceptions that still exist around, um, you know, how healthy frozen is versus fresh, you know, how nutritious it is. Um, so, yeah, as you say, it feels like there's a, um, there's quite a lot of progress that's already been made. And there should be an opportunity here for the industry to use the fact that sales are up, more people are buying more frozen products and are, you know, interested in learning how best to use them, to, to use that as a springboard to, you know, educate them and, and, and try and, you know, dispel some of the, um, the, the myths that still exist around frozen. Yeah. What was the second thing that caught your eye this week that you've been reading? So the, the, the second thing um, was this really great article about um, online grocery shopping um, and the carbon footprint um, specifically associated with online grocery shopping versus um, going to a store. And this is from Grist. Uh, Grist is an online publication, a US online publication that does quite a bit of investigative um, and explainer journalism um, around sustainability and the environment. And this is a piece by Mad Stone, um, which was really prompted by the annual letter by Jeff Bezos to Amazon shareholders. He writes this letter every year, um, and uh, it's always uh, picked apart and analysed for sort of clues as to the future direction of Amazon. And um, this year, it talks a lot about Amazon's response to, to COVID-19, of course, but it contains this really interesting snippet that caught Maddie's eye, and uh, she used it as a, as a sort of starting point for her article. And I'll just read you what, um, what he wrote. So the context here is that Amazon has been doing some... Um, of its own research trying to quantify the uh, carbon footprint associated with shopping online versus a um, car journey going to a store. And what he says is the study found that across uh, averaged across all basket sizes, online grocery deliveries generate 43% lower carbon emissions per item compared to shopping in stores. And smaller basket sizes generate even greater carbon savings. That's quite an interesting claim. And they base this on um, shopping with a Whole Foods market, which is obviously owned by, by Amazon. Um, and what the article in Grist has done is really ran this through a bit of a fact check. And they spoke to some experts to, to see, you know, does 43% sound likely and what might be some of the... Um, uncertainties or variance in in, um, in in a figure like that. 
And what's sort of come through, which I think is sort of speaks to the wider problem of sort of, you know, deciding what is environmentally friendly and what isn't environmentally friendly is that um, quite a few of the experts they they spoke to thought 43% roughly sounds about right in terms of the ballpark, or at least was plausible, um, but that it really does come down to um, the specific situation you are in, you know, on average, 43% lower doesn't really tell you that much about whether it would be more environmentally friendly for your specific situation. Um, and they quoted one uh, one scientist in particular who said that um, it kind of depends on what your normal shopping behavior is already. So, you know, if you're already walking, biking, you know, uh, or driving a Tesla, as he put it, to the grocery store, then uh, switching to online grocery is probably going to, you know, make your, um, your, your carbon footprint go up. Um, so it really, you know, depends on your particular situation and sort of, I think, really illustrates some of the dangers in making these broad brushstroke um, comparisons or, or statements about um, how environmentally friendly um, something is. It's fascinating, isn't it? And Amazon, are, I know that they've been threatening to come into the UK food market for or anticipated more than just Whole Foods uh, for quite some time. So interesting if they're putting a bit of a marker down there to help differentiate themselves and not only obviously in the UK, but, but worldwide. Do, do you think we'll see them in the UK market soon? I mean, they've obviously got a decent presence in, in the UK market already. You know, obviously, grocery is still relatively small compared with the sort of wider um, offering that they have. But, um, yeah, I think there's I, th I think they have demonstrated that they have a clear appetite um, for, for doing something quite ambitious around um, grocery. And, you know, Amazon, I think one of the reason Amazon, reasons Amazon has, has been so challenging for, for some of the more traditional retailers to deal with is that they have this real culture and appetite for experimentation. Um, and um, yeah, I think you know, what the t actual, you know, size of their grocery operation will, will end up being I think is, is is almost impossible to tell but I think they have shown consistent interest and a consistent um, willingness to you know invest some money and run some pretty eye-catching experiments in in that um, yeah. area so yeah I don't think you can I don't think anyone um, ever feels that they can't take them seriously no matter which <laughs> which sector they they are in but, you know I think I, I think that whole piece around and the environmental footprint, that's obviously a really live topic for, for Amazon full stop. But I think it's also just symptomatic of, of some of the debate around sustainability where um, you want to be able to give people guidance and say this would be a good choice or better choice and this would be a, a worse choice. Um, and sometimes it's just so difficult to do that when the the arguments are you know are so nuanced and you know it's so difficult to say well in your specific situation and in this particular set of circumstances um you know online grocery would be more or less environmentally uh, friendly so uh, for me that piece i think was just a, a useful reminder of how tricky and complex uh, these these debates about sustainability tend to be yeah 
But the, the second thing that I wanted to talk about was um, an article that, that re I really enjoyed reading this week in The Telegraph by Mary Portis, uh, the, the retail guru. And um, she was chatting about what the future landscape of retail was going to look like um, out of the grocery sector for, for a change for us. Um, and we know the high street's been under pressure for, for a long time and, and, and COVID's going to fast track some of that change. And particularly off the back of the news this week that John Lewis is being quite open about the fact it's probably not going to open all of its stores back up um, once we, we get back into normal normal habits. Um, but what Mary Portis was saying that the what will be left after we we, we pass COVID is a more exp experiential retail ex um, experience or environment. So as you say, you know we're so used to shopping online now. If you're going out your house to go to a, a department store or whatever it may be, it's got to offer something really different. And the market's actually been crying out for that for a long time. But this is going to fast track us a decade in terms of what that looks like. What that she, she's actually anticipating it will look like is it probably a lot less choice, uh, particularly in the short term. Um, so quantity will will disappear, but quality will increase. So and I suppose with that as well, price point. So you know, watching with interest what's happening with Primark at the moment with no online. Uh, offering whatsoever and all their stores closed will that discount end of the market still be there or will it be a more premium experience type of environment that we used to when we go out onto the high street so um i was watching some some kantar stats this morning and they were saying that only uh, 35 percent of people are looking forward to go back uh, shopping as an experience but i, I thought behind that because that's my hobby so that's how, <laughs> how sad my life is so uh, i'm keen to get back out there and see what the high streets do um, in terms of that, that that sort of fashion retail environment and uh, it'd be very interesting to see who comes and who moves quickly in that space as well. Totally. I mean, I think with experiential, it feels like that is a trend that's been talked about quite a lot and for such a long time. And I still, I find when, you know, people pitch stories to me or, or want to talk to me about experiential, um, it's such a broad term. I'm still not entirely sure what it is in practice. You know, I think you can see quite a lot of experiment, you know, experiential elements in in, in various sort of um, retail environments. But um, yeah, I'm not quite sure we fully cracked the added value that provides to to shoppers beyond a little bit of distraction here and there so you know i think it's really interesting to see um to see mary porter's believe so strongly in, in this being the point of difference that is going to um you know help help ensure that the that the the high street continues to thrive but um particularly i think in in food um you know, we've seen quite a few attempts to bring more experiential components to to retailing. How effective those have been when it really comes to you know persuading shoppers to spend more time in stores and and spend a bit more money, I don't know. Um, I also I do wonder how quickly after COVID, after the lockdown, after you know social physical distancing shoppers are going to have an appetite to be in some kind of retail experience or whether we, we're going to want something reasonably, you know, transactional at, at the beginning. But it'll be fascinating to watch, I think. 
You're totally right. And when you think of experiential and you're right, you know, there isn't a huge amount of it. You think expensive, you think people, you think labor, you think personal shopper or, or something like that. And you're right in the, in the grocery, you know, be that market street and Morrison's for argument's sake and their food theater, you're relying on having that labor, that expertise. And that's hard, isn't it? To, to keep that service level, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, I don't know, a rate that consumers are willing to pay for. And that, that's going to have to be passed on. Okay. I'll stop rambling. Tell me what your third one is. So the <laughs> third one, I, I read this this morning and this is like probably one of my favorite articles I've read this week. This is brilliant. It's, um, by Amelia Tate, writing for Wired, um, and it's called YouTube's Candy King is Running a Sugary Online Cartel. Brilliant headline already. It tells you what you're in for. This is the story of Edward, Edward from Arizona, and Edward is a candy-selling influencer. And the way the article pitches what Edward does and, and who he is, is as follows. Every school has that one kid who tries to make money by selling sweets and drinks. Now there's an online community sharing tips and tricks for maximizing profits. So Edward, who runs hashtag Candy Cartel and has an Instagram um, account called Rich Snack Seller, basically specializes in providing tips and tricks for kids that want to sell candy and, um, you know, hustle hard. So he's got lots of YouTube subscribers, lots of Instagram um, followers, mainly boys aged 13 to 18, um, who want to get better at, um, at sending candy at school. Um, and it's just, it's such a brilliant it's brilliantly written, um, you know, really paints a, a picture of, um, of, of Edward and, and his business. But it's also just one of those great ideas where you kind of think, I can't believe there's um, there's candy selling influencers now who do online mentoring and online courses on how to, you know, maximize your, your profit and your, you know, I don't know, shopping strategies for Costco to make sure your margins are, are good and how to deal with teachers. There's a brilliant line in here um, where Edward advises kids to behave well and get good grades so that teachers are more lenient if and when they get caught selling candy. So he's got some really, you know, hands-on advice um, for, for his audience. But yeah, as I said, I think it's, it's just a a super colorful piece, really fun, um, but also shows you that that sort of, you know, that influencer culture really is everywhere when you think surely there's there's not going to be um, a business to be made around um, advising kids on, on selling candy. Well, of course there is. And of course, there's a, an online community around it. And of course, there are influencers, um, you know, providing a mentoring and, and tips. Um, it's a really, really fun read. I love it. Does he give the current market rate on cola cubes? That's what I'd be he interested does. in. He no. does. I'm sure he keeps all of that uh, close to his chest. So. Yeah, he does do want to shift to a cartel, doesn't give any pricing info. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, the last thing that I wanted to mention and again was back onto to high street and fashion retail and something that caught my eye a couple of weeks ago that w was teased in the Sunday Times and then um, has happened this week was the possibility of Oasis warehouse retail chains going into um, administration that Deloitte has been looking for a buyer for them for the last fortnight and announced earlier this week that 
that hasn't been successful for their retail estate anyway. Uh, there is some interest around their brand and, and online sales. But why this really caught my eye is probably I've spent a lot of cash in those shops historically, uh, but also the fact that 92 stores, standalone stores, and 437 concessions and almost 2,000 employees, and it's hardly had any news coverage. And I think this is the fact, you know, the the our whole industry is changing and retail is changing. That that would have probably been top second item in the news two three months ago, but now it's barely even a footnote. You know, we're going to step back out into uh, both grocery and a standard high street retail um, in a in a few months' time, and it's going to look pretty much unrecognisable, I think. But with with some of these changes, so you know that that was something that I just more so the the, the lack of news coverage around it really did catch my eye. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I find, you know, particularly with, with news coverage at the moment, often it's not even that there's a lack of news coverage. It's just that there is so much material at the moment. You know, the news cycle is so, so fast that by the time something like that gets reported, there are, you know, so, there's so much other stuff that's happened that, you know, it, it just gets drowned out a little bit at the moment. But I think you're absolutely right there, you know, it feels like the changes that are happening on the high street, not just with some of these big chains that, you know, obviously everyone knows and expects to see on their high street, but also with, you know, pubs and restaurants and, you know, the sorts of local businesses that really do make a high street and give it its character. You know, we're, we're sort of living in isolation at the moment, not going to these high streets and we're going to return at some point having to find out if our favorite, you know, restaurant has, yeah. you know, managed to survive and, 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 you know, if our favorite pub is still going. So yeah, it's, um, it's quite eerie, I think, um, mm. at times. And, you know, those, especially some of those smaller businesses obviously are having a, a really, really tough time, but yeah, I think we're going to emerge out of all of this into, um, quite a, quite a different world, not just on the high street, but, but elsewhere as well. So thank you. Great to talk to you and uh, you catch up next week. Bye. Bye. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.